Nice to see you all this morning. I'm Scott Spencer. I'm the assistant pastor here. Uh, Mike is just out of town. Couldn't make it back in time, so um, I'm going to do my best to fill up the next uh, 45 minutes or so. That sounds better. Thank you, Curtis. My buddy back there, Curtis. You know, him and I went to school together. Can you believe that? Like middle school. He was a bully, but I won't go there, okay? (laughs) Actually, he wasn't, but anyway, sounded good. So I've been working my way through 1 Corinthians. It seems like maybe for a year now. I'm not really sure. But we made it up to chapter 15, and uh, this is a really good chapter. I like this chapter a lot. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you know, is pivotal to Christianity. If everything had ended at the cross, if everything had gone just as it had, and then Jesus died on the cross and was buried, and that was the end of the story, then nothing else would have any significance at all. It's pivotal. It's critical that Jesus rose from the dead and that we believe it. You know, I'm hearing pastors now, pastors, mind you, who are saying that he didn't raise from the dead. You know, there's lots of theories about what happened to Jesus other than being raised from the dead. Uh, The secular world would love to be able to point to a grave and say that's where Jesus is buried, but there isn't one. There isn't one. But there are pastors out there now who are saying, well, maybe he didn't really raise from the dead. Maybe something else happened. No, there are witnesses. There were witnesses back in the day. Paul's talking about them in 1 Corinthians 15. Witnesses who saw him, who walked with him, who spoke with him, who touched his body. And we cannot overstate how important the fact is that Jesus rose from the dead and that we believe it. For a long time after Jesus was raised from the dead, the the message, the, the account was retold. Hundreds of people were talking about it, but it wasn't written down. Did you know that Paul here is is the the first New Testament writer to record, to actually write down the account of Jesus' resurrection. The account, uh, his account uh, that he's written precedes the other accounts by about 15 years. Isn't that interesting? Paul is the one who wrote it down first. I don't know what prompted Paul to, you know, if you've been following 1 Corinthians Maybe you need to go back and just kind of glance over it a little bit to remind yourself, because there were a lot of problems in the first Corinthian church, in, in the Corinthian church. And Paul wrote these letters to correct those problems, to correct those issues. And so I don't know why specifically Paul included this part in this uh, letter to the Corinthians, but there must have been some question that came up about the resurrection of Jesus for him to talk about this. And Paul's answer to that question, presuming that question was asked, brought together a bunch of the different accounts of Jesus' resurrection. 
You know how it is when you see something happen. Suppose, uh, suppose you're, um, you know, suppose you're in, in a shopping mall somewhere and, uh, you know, something happens. Somebody, uh, somebody punches somebody else. And so you're standing over here. Somebody's standing over there. There's people standing at different points. Everybody has a different view of that same thing, right? And so everybody's story is a little bit different because they saw it from a different perspective. So there were all these people who witnessed Jesus, who met him when he was walking, who talked with him. But they all had a little bit of something to add to that account. And so Paul brings all that together. Paul talks about all of those things. We can assume that that somebody asks a question and Paul is pointing out how significant this point is to the Christian faith. The fact that Jesus died, he was buried, and then he rose again. And there is no grave that you can point to. You can point to a grave to Muhammad. We know where Muhammad's buried. We know where Buddha's buried. We know where Gandhi's buried. We know where all of these philosophers are. Uh, we can, we, they're marked. We know where they are. And uh, if you go to, if you go to uh, Israel, they will point to a tomb in a cave-like place. And they will say, we believe that this may have been where Jesus was buried. And you know what? It's an open tomb. You can walk in there because there's no body there. And they don't even know for sure that that's the spot. You know why that is? I believe you know why that is, is because it doesn't matter. doesn't matter where Jesus, the, the important thing is that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people for proof that he was not in the grave. In that first part of chapter 15, Paul kind of dwells on the fact that the resurrection actually took place. And, uh, and, and, then, and then he talks about the hope that we have because of that. He says in 15, chapter 15, the third verse, For I have delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then He was seen by Peter, by Cephas, and then by the twelve, and then by others. After that, He was seen by over 500 people at once, of whom the greater part remain in the present, but some have fallen asleep. He's saying some of those 500 people or more than 500 people, some of them have died, but most of them are still alive. And folks, he's telling this to the Corinthians. He's saying, folks, if you have a question about whether or not Christ rose from the dead, go talk to these people because they were there. They saw it with their own two eyes. They're witnesses. You know, when there's witnesses, that pretty much trumps other stuff, right? If, if, if there is, uh, you know, if it's gossip, well, it's just gossip. If it's hearsay, it's just hearsay. 
But if you got a witness, if there's a witness there who can say, I saw this with my own eyes, and you know what? Those people who saw that, they never recanted. A lot of those people died a horrible death. The Romans were masters at, at creating horrible deaths, the worst ever, and they never recanted. I'm telling you, folks, people don't die for a lie. They're not going to die for a lie. If, if they're telling a lie, if they're lying about it, when you put the knife up into their throat, they're like, okay, okay. They're like, okay, I, I, I really, that's really not true. The only time someone will die for a lie is when they know it's absolutely true. And there were many of these folks who had that exact same experience. So after he was, after that, he was seen by James. Then he was seen by all the apostles. And then last of all, he says, he was seen, I, he says, I saw him. I saw him too. I was the last one. And that, that is uh, Paul's experience uh, when he lost his sight and when he, you know, all, all of that happened when he saw Jesus. Um, most of us probably would, you know, I don't know, most of us probably wouldn't survive that kind of a thing. Paul was a special person, I believe. So Paul says in the ninth verse, he says, actually the 10th verse, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. He says, I have labored more abundantly than everyone, but the grace of God, but it was by the grace of God, which was in me. So Paul's just saying, I, I have, I have put forth utmost effort because I saw Jesus. I saw him alive and it completely changed my life. Remember, Paul was going around murdering Christians everywhere. That was, his, that was his goal. That was what he did. He was hunting for Christians so that he could murder them. And you can imagine, you know, you remember back, back when they were, uh, they were going to bring Paul to some of the Christians and they said, no, don't bring him here. They're horrified. Well, it's because they knew what he was doing. And they were saying, man, there can't be anything good about that guy. I don't want him here. They didn't know what a change had taken place. You know, that could give some of you hope. You could be like, I'm really a horrible person. And if people knew how bad I am, they wouldn't even let me through the doors. But that just goes to show what, what can happen when the Lord appears to somebody. They're a changed person. Change from the inside out. That's not something that any psychologist can do for you. That's not something that any self-help book can do for you. They don't work like that. Those things work like a, a, a topical ointment. You know, like, like for those of us who, you know, we're getting old and we're starting to hurt here and there. And we rub something on and hopefully it soaks in. But it only goes a little ways, and it doesn't really solve the problem, does it? That's what those things are. If Jesus gets in your life, he changes you from the inside out. And he does it in a way 
that no one else can do that nothing else can do. And it's a permanent change. It's a permanent fix. And you're never the same again. That's something that you have to be willing to let him do. Because we still have free will, don't we? We can still say no to Jesus. Jesus can come up. Remember remember when, uh, I don't know, you've probably seen this picture. I, I saw this picture in my grandparents' house. Jesus knocking on the door. And there's no doorknob, number one. Back in those days, sometimes they they had a little latch on the inside and, and they would put a, a, a leather piece of leather through a hole so you could pull it and open it from the outside. There's not one of those. There's no way to open the door from the outside. The only way it can be opened is from the inside. But Jesus is knocking. You have to let him in. You have to invite him in. You invite him in and he will change your life. Guaranteed. So Paul's reminding the Corinthians there about how they heard the gospel and what a difference it made in their lives. So Paul was the human instrument. Paul was a human instrument that God used to bring the gospel to them. And it was by that, by them hearing that word that Paul brought that they were given life. And as a result of that, then they took a stand as believers and they were changed. Paul wanted them to realize how precious this word was. And he said to them, he said, hold fast that word which I preached to you. Paul reminded them then that the gospel, when the gospel is reduced down to its essence, it is an event in history. It's an event in history. It's not something that it's not something that was played out in in some distant time and a place far, far away. There's a specific time and a specific place that this thing took took place. It's an event in history. The death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, it's an event in history. It's something that really happened. There's too many people these days who, who want to say, oh, it's just a story in a book. And a dusty old boring book at that. That's what they want to say. They want to discount it. They want to say, oh, it's a fantasy. Those Christians, they're, they're, those Christians are probably domestic terrorists anyway. That's what they say. They don't believe it. They don't want to believe it. Fact is, if they believed it, they would have to do something about it. And they don't want that. They don't want that at all. So, Paul says it was an event in history, and he summarizes God's activity there in three statements. I've been saying them over and over again already. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, and He rose again. And it could be that those words were used at baptisms. I believe sometimes people, sometimes pastors, still speak those words and baptisms, because that that is the type of thing that we're commemorating by a baptism, is that death and the burial and then being raised again. And it's really important. <laughs> it's really important when you're being baptized that you get raised again, right? 
or else you, yeah, you are just having the death and burial. So we need to, you need to raise you up, right? So Paul focused on that significance of the cross in salvation and the reality of Jesus' death and our hope. We have hope because of the resurrection. Can you imagine what life would be like if we, you know, there are people who believe that at our death, everything is over. It's people who believe that. Can you imagine how hopeless you would be? Can you imagine how, how depressing life would be? Can you imagine what it would be like when you get up to that point where, you know, you are very aware that your time is nearly there and you just had nothing beyond that? Try to imagine. I, I, don't, I can't imagine it. Because we know that there is something beyond. And we know a lot about what is beyond. We know a lot about it. There's a lot we don't know. But there's a lot that we do know. And by Paul reminding them of that, what their lives are leading up. Remember, remember this Corinthian church had kind of gone off the rails and their focus was, it was almost like a party house, you know? It was almost like uh, when they came together for the Lord's Supper, it was, it was party time in this Corinthian church. They were, I don't know what kind of music they had, okay? I'm, I'm, I don't even know if they had music, but, you know, my, the only way I can refer to it is say that was a rocking church. They were having a good time. But they weren't really worshiping the Lord very well. That was a problem. So Paul was reminding them, look, this, this is the central point. This is the central point, folks, is the resurrection. That needs to be your focus. Not on party time. It's not the time for that. Your focus needs to be on the fact that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. And he was saying, for those of you who have a question about that, there are witnesses that you can talk to. We have a lot of those witnesses recorded in the Bible. Remember, the Bible is a historical document. It's not fiction. It's not made up. The people in the Bible really lived. The events of the Bible really took place. And all of it is a historical document. So while he's acknowledging, Paul's acknowledging some of those eyewitnesses that had died, he's saying there's still about 500 people alive you can go talk to. And, and he, he made, Paul made no distinction between the Christ that was seen by those 500 people or by Peter or by the Christ that appeared to him on the road to Damascus. It's the same person. It's the same person. No difference. You know, there's one thing that's very clear as you're reading Scripture is that the disciples didn't really get the idea of the resurrection. Even though Jesus told them many times what was going to happen, and he was pretty specific on some instances, they didn't get it. 
And, you know, we can come down hard on them. You know, everyone knows about Doubting Thomas. We'll never forget Doubting Thomas. Guy didn't believe. Guy had to touch with his own hands. He couldn't, you know, well, let's don't be too hard on him. Fact is, I've never seen anybody raised from the dead either. And if somebody told me I'm going to die, and what's the significance of being in the grave for three days? What is the significance of that? The fact is that when somebody is dead for three days, they're dead. You know, one of the theories is that Jesus fell into a swoon. He passed out. He passed out and the Romans took him down from the, from the cross and put him in there and then he revived. For three days? Really? I'll tell you one thing. That is that the Romans made sure nobody came down from the cross alive. The Romans were experts at killing people. And nobody came down from that cross alive, let alone lay in a grave for three days. That's the significance of him being there for three days, is nobody could say that he wasn't dead. He was very dead. He was very dead. But the fact is that God brings life, right? God brings life to everything He brings life to us, and he could bring life to Jesus. Essentially, Jesus raised himself from the dead. You can do that if you're God. That's the significance of that. So when the disciples were questioning, you know, you remember when when Jesus died and and the disciples were around the... uh, the, the, the place there, and they were kind of hiding, and somebody would ask them, somebody said, you were with him, weren't you? And he said, no, I wasn't with him. He denied it. You know, I, I can get pretty hard on that. I'm like, dude, that's harsh. That's harsh to deny the Lord. How can you do that? Well, let's not be too hard on him. I'm not sure how many of us in that kind of a situation would want to just come out and say, Hey, I was with him. He's my, he's my buddy. He's my dude. Hang out with him all the time. You really want to do that? I think probably a lot of us would be like the others. We'd be kind of skulking around in the shadows and trying not to attract too much attention. They didn't really get what Jesus said about raising from the dead. They didn't really get it. And I don't think we would have either. No, Jesus talked a lot about it. When you, when you go through and you're reading, you're like, he says it here, he says it here, and he says it here. And he's being pretty specific. He's being very specific. But that's kind of tough to deal with, Right? Someone says, I'm going to die and I'm going to, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And, and you're like, well, how does that work? You know? And, and we don't really know. And then when you see, you know, they saw Jesus come down from the cross and they knew there was no life there. There was no amount of CPR that was going to bring him back. He was gone. And they saw the body. 
and they helped put him in the tomb. And they're like, well, it's over. Everything is over. Paul says in the 20, in the 7th, uh, 12th verse, or they see that. Now, if Jesus has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? And if there's no resurrection of the dead, if there's no resurrection of the dead, so he's talking about the Lord's people. He's talking about Christians. And, and he's saying, if there's no resurrection of the dead for, for Christians, for all of us, then there's no resurrection for Christ. If you're saying that, that there's no resurrection for people, for humankind, then there's no resurrection from Christ. Because at that point, Christ was a person, right? And if you're saying that there's no resurrection for Christ, then there's no resurrection for people. Saying, if there's resurrection for the Lord, if the Lord raised from the dead and he told us all of these things and he said that his people were going to be resurrected from the dead, then there is resurrection. Because there were some people who were saying, well, Christ could raise from the dead, of course. Christ is God. But not, not people, not us. We're too ordinary, even though that's what God promised. So they're trying to rationalize this out here. They're trying to figure that out. And, and uh, Paul says then in the 16th verse, he says, For if the dead did not raise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep, meaning those who have already died in Christ, have perished. They're just dead, and there's no hope, there's no hope for a resurrection. But then in the 20th verse, he says, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. And as in, uh, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all will be made alive, each one in his own order. Each one in his own order. He says, uh, for Christ must reign and, until he has put his enemies underfoot. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And death is an enemy that Christ will destroy. Verse 27, for he's put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it's evidence that he who has put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all that God may be all in all so that Corinthian question that came up there there's many of you he says Paul says in verse 12 how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead probably uh, <clears throat> probably maybe they they didn't really question Jesus's resurrection because at that point there had been so many witnesses and there had been so much talk about all of that 
uh, that maybe they didn't really dispute that, but they were disputing whether or not ordinary Christians would be raised from the dead. They're saying that's just going too far. They just can't deal with that. And maybe there was a death in the church that brought this up. We, we don't really know. But um, buried, you got to remember, buried down in that Greek culture that they were living in was the idea that the body was a prison, that the body was a prison in, and the soul was trapped inside. So they're saying the body is a prison and the soul is trapped inside. And upon death, a good soul would be released. That was their belief. That was a Greek belief. And they had, they had a few other things too that, that they had to deal with. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta cut them a little bit of slack. You gotta realize they're coming into this situation. They're coming into Christianity with all this baggage, all this Greek baggage that they need to put down. That was a, that was a big part of, of first Corinthians was people who had come into the church and they brought all of their previous ideas with them. And they don't want to let them go. Sounds kind of like church today, doesn't it? People become a Christian and they're like, oh, I love these ideas. You know, I love the idea of resurrection after death. I love the idea of forgiveness of sins. But I'm going to bring this trunk full of stuff that I've believed my whole life. And I'm going to drag it into the church and bring it with me. And it causes problems caused problems for them and it caused problems today. Just like now, they needed to be able to leave all of that stuff behind, leave it behind, maybe even bury it, dig a big hole and throw it all in, have a big fire, get rid of it. That's what we need to do with a lot of our beliefs too, isn't it? A lot of times they're cultural things, you know, for us today, uh, from a cultural perspective, we're being taught from the scientific point of view. We're being taught that there's nothing after death, that they need to just bury our body and, and it will help fertilize everything so that new stuff can grow. And that's it. You're in the tree. You're in the tree. Literally. And that's the scientific point of view. They don't want to say that there's anything that, that, that lives on. That we have a soul that lives on. We do have a soul that lives on. And that soul is going to live on either in God's place or in Satan's place. That soul is not dying. That soul lives on forever. And this is the time when you prepare for that. You know, when you, when you consider, you know, if you consider, suppose you consider the millennium as a thousand years. So the millennium is a part of our afterlife. And then after the millennium is eternity. How long is eternity? 
How long is eternity? The millennium we know is a thousand years. That's, that's easy. Even I can count to a thousand. Eternity is, that's a really big number. I don't really know how, how long eternity is, but it's a big number. I remember taking an astronomy class and the professors trying to, uh, illustrate distances between planets. I remember, I don't remember which planet's the furthest one out there, okay? I I wasn't a very good student, but um, I remember him putting zeros on the board, and he started over on one side of the room, and he was illustrating. So there's all these miles here, light years, and he's putting zeros, and he's putting marks, you know, here's this planet, and here's this planet, and and then he gets down to the to the one that's the furthest out there, uh, Pluto maybe or something, and uh, and he goes out of the room, and you could hear him walking down the hall, because he had on shoes, you know, that made sounds. You could hear him walking, and he turns the corner. He walks he walks from this corner to that corner, and then he turns the corner, and you can hear him fading off into the distance. And then pretty soon he yells out. I'm over here by the restrooms. This is where it is. That's a really big number. I don't know how big that number is. All I'm saying is that, you know, if we live to be, suppose I live to be 80, what's the portion of a thousand years is that 80 years? I'm not very good at math, so I'm not going to do that for you. But my point is that it's just a little bit. So we have to prepare for eternity in this little bit of time that we have. And you know, in reality, it's not 80 years. Because I think I probably was 20 before I kind of got my stuff together and could think straight. You know, boys are like that. It takes a while. A little bit slow. So we don't even really have 80 years. Might have 50. Might have 50 years. And then, you know, for some people, maybe they're, maybe they're living a pretty good Christian life and they're kind of getting their stuff together by the time they're 30. And then about the time they're 45, bam, something happens. Some horrible thing happens. Maybe there's a car accident. Maybe there's a divorce. Maybe somebody dies. Something that blindsides you and you're knocked off the rails. That happens, doesn't it? So my point is, we don't have a lot of time to prepare for eternity and for the millennium. That's what we're here for, folks. We're here to prepare for that. And you know what? It doesn't matter what kind of a house you live in. It doesn't matter how big your bank accounts are. It doesn't matter if you drive a Cadillac. It doesn't really matter what kind of a car you drive at all unless you drive a muscle car. That's very important. No, that was a joke. Sorry. That was a joke. But those things don't matter. Why? 
Why don't they matter? Because they're not going. They're not going. You're going to leave them with your kids, and your kids probably going to sell them anyway. Right? What matters is how have you prepared for life after death? Because there is a resurrection. There's a resurrection, and your soul lives on. Your soul will go to one of two places that both been prepared. One is a really good place. We don't know a lot about it, but I guarantee you it's not sitting on a cloud playing a harp. It isn't. I don't care how many drawings there are of people sitting on a cloud playing a harp. That's not it. How do I know that? I don't like harp music. And I can't play the harp anyway. We're going to be doing stuff for God. That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that a part of our rewards for being faithful servants is responsibility. Did you catch that? (laughs) You know what the Bible says? The Bible says we're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. We're We're going to be managing things. That's, that's not something that really excites me that much because that's a lot of responsibility and that sounds like work. I don't want to work that hard, right? My idea of heaven, let me tell you my idea of heaven. I'm joking, okay? This is a joke. This is not biblical. I'm joking. My idea of heaven is a lounge chair on a beach someplace with palm trees and the ocean out there. Now that would be heaven to me. And I could just sit there drinking iced tea all day long, reading books or talking to my friends. That would be heaven. The Bible says we're going to be doing stuff. Remember that? Remember remember when Jesus tells the people, he says, you did well with your money. You get 10 cities, you get five cities, and you, you sucker over there who did nothing with the money I gave you, I'm going to take the money that you even have and give it to the guy who did something with it. That's not just an analogy. It is an analogy. But, but that Jesus was making a point. He's saying, I give you, I'm giving you something in this life. You need to do something with it. Don't just sit on it. I believe that plays out in several ways. First of all, we are given a life. And God does expect us to serve him with our life. God puts different abilities in people that he expects us to use for him. But then there's also another thing that we have, right? We know about Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus was crucified for our sins. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. How many of you tell that story to anybody? You think maybe you have a responsibility to tell people about that? 
I do. You don't have to say it like that. There's different ways you can say it. And I'm not really an advocate of like memorizing a, a tract, you know, the Roman road to salvation. I'm not really a fan of that. I believe that if you are prayerful through your day, that is, you have a little contact with the Holy Spirit, with the Lord, and you, you walk into a situation and you say, I can see that there's an opportunity here for me to minister to somebody. Okay, if you don't like the word minister, don't, don't use that. I, I could help somebody. We all like to help people, don't we? Usually we do. Lord, put the words in my mouth that I need to say to this person. How do I speak to this person? How do I reach them? How do I share the Lord with them? The Lord will put the words there, exactly what you need to say. And you'll reach people. And it doesn't have to be a long time. You don't have to spend 30 minutes, you know, telling about all the apostles, telling about, you don't have to do that. But you share your faith with somebody. There's two things right there. What do we do with our life? And what do we do with our faith? What we do with those things determine how we will spend eternity. You know, the Bible is very clear. There's lots of rewards. Getting into heaven is the jackpot. And the bar is low for that. The bar is really low. What what does the Bible say you have to do to be saved? Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. That's pretty easy, isn't it? Most people can do that. It's really easy. But then, what do you do with your life and your faith beyond that? And the Bible tells us that there are heavenly rewards that are going to be given to people who have spent their life and they've done something with their faith for God. And it's not selfish to do that. God wants to give us those things. God wants to give us those things. He's prepared those things. Wow. I was just getting started there, and I can see that we do have communion today. And uh, so we're going to share in communion. Uh, If you guys, whoever is going to be serving that, if you would come on down here and... um, what we'll do is uh, Curtis will dim the lights and these guys will pass this out and then I'll read, read a couple of verses and I'll pray and then we can take, take communion together. Lord God Almighty, thank you. Thank you for this message. Thank you for the life that we have that we can invest in you. And God, we just ask you to give us direction in that. We ask you to guide our hearts. We thank Jesus for all that he did for us, his life and his death and his resurrection. We pray, Lord, that, uh, that uh, we pray, Lord, that we would be um, quieted
and that our heart, our spirit would be solemn at this moment, thinking about what the Lord has done for us and uh, what we can do for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.